Hi, I'm Mike Oppenheim, and you are listening to Coffin Talk, interviews with the living, a weekly podcast that explores how our views on death affect the way we live our life. And this week, I have someone very special to me. I call her hermana, which is the Spanish word for sister, because she is uh, one of my oldest friends and also someone who literally is like a sister to me, um, sometimes much to the detriment, and uh, because uh, I get picked on. (laughs) She's an older sister, I should mention that. But anyway, her name is Lisette Saavedra, and she's a retail sommelier. She's a hype girl for the people, a fitness geek in her free time, and a mother to one, insert several adjectives describing awesome here, five-year-old boy. And uh, I'd also like to add that, in my opinion, she's a gourmet chef. She did not write that in her bio, but I'm adding that. Lisette, how are you? Oh, Mike, I'm so good. I'm so uh, I'm so humbled to be a part of this show. What, a, what an opportunity. Wow. I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I've got my beverages with me. I've got like my calming tea and my coffee and my water. I'm ready to go. That is awesome. That is perfect. And that's exactly how we would want all our guests to be relaxed, calm, but also a little bit uh, excited because that will make the show better. Could you please just really quick for our audience, tell us uh, how old you are and where you grew up? Okay. So I am Lisette. I'm 42 years old. I was uh, initially born in Miami, Florida. And when I was two, sorry, Alana, my mother had the good sense of getting me out of Florida. So she moved me out of Miami and into the heart of the beast in Los Angeles. And then she had the good sense of getting me out of there when I was 10. So I was raised in the Bay Area with small stints in London and Portland, where I met Mike. And uh, then ultimately 16 years in San Francisco before moving to Denver. Yeah. And we have a lot in common, like so many things. But I think the weirdest one that at least when we first met was um, Lisette is also Jewish and Cuban, which is what I am. And that's uh, not very common. So uh, we that's why we look like we're siblings, which is part of the joke. So. so Mike, I am going to just go ahead and cut you off right there for a hot second. So Mike and I had a conversation about a week ago in which I mentioned to you that there was something that I really wanted to share. Oh, no. And I have been holding <laughs> this one close to me since your wedding, since the great Oppenheim wedding of 2020. I actually, I initially came in like guns blazing, ready to tell you, like all amped up. And uh And then the pandemic happened and then life happened and then you had beautiful Alice and we moved to Nebraska temporarily and life got crazy. And so what better moment to share with you than a podcast that I am that 23 and me story and I am not a Jew. Wow. (laughs) That is crazy. Wow. 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 Yeah. And to peel the curtain back, she did tell me a week ago that she had a bombshell to drop, and I was guessing furiously. No part of me guessed this. So Yeah, this this has been this has been a massive um conversation in the past few years. Super, super interesting. Here I was, you know, taking the test, not guessing to myself that there was any surprises other than like how Jewish are you? You know, I mean that was the question. That is how Jewish I knew I was based on my mother's stories and all the things that my father had shared with her, you know, and they had been married for some time. They divorced when I was two. So I I had some experience with his story and knowledge of where he came from. But other than that, otherwise I had never met him up until I was about 37 years old. I had not even seen so much as a photo of him. So there I go on 23 and me. And I'm just like, okay, cool. So like, I mean, am I a Portuguese Jew? Is there some Israeli in there? Like, what am I going to find? Right. And I am 
close to 14% Native American. So that starts coming out. You know, there are little bits of like Vietnamese here, there's some French, there's, but then there she is. You are your most recent ancestry in America come from Cuba, which I was well aware of, and Mexico City. Hey everyone, if you're a fan of the show, please head over to MikeyOp.com and click the subscribe button. It's the best way to support us and it's free. That's M-I-K-E-Y-O-P-P.com. Thanks. This is so good for this podcast because it is actually totally ties into a few of the questions I was planning on asking you, which is about identity and childhood and like knowing of, but not really directly knowing your dad, which obviously is a theme in my life in reverse. Correct. Wow. I mean, actually, the first question I want to ask you, just because I'd never heard this part, your mother didn't keep a single photo of your father to show you the whole time you were a kid. So that's another can of worms. Um, (laughs) 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 Which direction do we want to take this podcast here? Because we could go in many different avenues. I think we have the making for like a two hours. I'm not going to refer to her her name just in case, but I say hi to your mom if she listens to this because I love her dearly and... As do I, as do I. Um, yeah, that was that was a story that was kind of kept within the family. My grandmother used to love to tell me or remind me that when I was very, very young, she attempted to show me a photo of him, and I said to her that I did not like his face. And so please put that away. Now, clearly, I am not going to remember that moment. So years later, when I'm like, hey, guys, how about that photo? How about just like anything? And no one, no one had anything. So it wasn't until I think my aunt had moved from Florida that she found a photo of my father in one of her old boxes. And I get this random call one day, you know, as you do from your mother, who's just like, hey, you want to see what your dad looks like? So, yeah. So up until then, I had not seen him. And my story with him, you know, was riddled with what had been shared with me and also just like this ultimate desire to not to get past it um not the greatest guys so they just kind of moved on and she left and as i said took me to another state so so this discovery kind of like it was like you know it it was the impetus for wanting to know more and that was right around the time that we were talking about having a child and anthony's like i think that we need to jump on finding out a little more about your genealogy right so come 2019, just before your wedding, I take this 23 and me, right? Well, it gets it gets better. I mean, like this is just that this is just like the icing. This is there was so much that occurred after your wedding that I'm actually kind of excited that like this is a platform that we're using for me to share all this with you. This is incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh 20 2019, 23 and me is taken. I find all this out. And I'm searching. I mean, I have just like hundreds and hundreds of you know, distant relatives, all with last names such as Ramirez and Hernandez. And and I'm just like, I'm looking for one like Rosenberg, you know, I'm just like, where it's like, there's gotta be one, right? Like there's like a 0.05 Ashkenazi Jew match there. I am more Vietnamese than, you know, than, than like Ashkenazi on 23andMe, but where's all this Jewish? Like what on earth? I knew his last name was Rosen. Um, my mother told me he was just, you know, he was very entrenched in the Jewish world in Miami. So sometime in 2020, I am reached out to by this woman who says, hey, I think I know your first cousin. Would you like me to put you in touch with her? And I knew that I was one of several kids. I knew that he had had several marriages and potentially one after me. But I was not quite prepared <laughs> for everything that just kind of snowballed after this. So before I know it, I'm put in contact with Don, who is my first cousin, raised by my father's mother, raised by our grandmother, who is 
half French Canadian, half Mexican, just very close to the border of Texas. Um, you know, I, I have family photos sent to me. I have a grandfather who looks like Diego Rivera. My grandmother was a redhead and my father was a golden gloves boxing champion. Wow. <laughs> who did not move to the United States until he was 18 years old. His mother came first to make the money, left the father, saved up dough, sent her children over. And my father moved to Wisconsin when he was 18. Yeah, totally freaking bonkers. The man reinvented himself, whoa, 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 wow. studied medicine, <laughs> let that go, married his first wife, had my first sister and brother, who I'm now in contact with, Rosemary, whom I speak to regularly. Um, went on to meet my mother eventually, had become a Jew by then, I guess. You know, had some charlatan story about how his father was a Portuguese Jew never sharing with my mother the truth that he came from Mexico and went on to marry some Georgian, you know, produce agriculture heiress, had twins, and then a final son in his last marriage. So I am one of five. I'm sorry, or six? Let's count. <laughs> uh, no, six, six, six. I am six. I make six. And you're the last one or you're not? The no, no, you're not. I'm not. I am not. I'm the second. I am the second to last one. Unbelievable. And it like more than ties into this the theme of this podcast so i'm so glad you did wait and like my reactions are so like not fake that i i cannot even i mean i mean okay obviously just for our listeners in case you're new um as i revealed a few episodes ago um i have an estranged son who lives in thailand who i saw every single day of my life until he was two i got a divorce from his mother um i do not I have talked to him many times since then, but we currently don't talk a lot. And uh, there's definitely friction between the two families. So it's it's on my personal level, I'm listening to all this and like gobbling popcorn because I tell this to Alana all the time. Even if things don't go the way I think they will, which I think they will, I really do. Um, I know that someday he's going to like love that he has his sister over here, you know, and a hundred percent, a hundred percent. It really is. And it makes my heart like just springing with joy. I'm just so happy. And you have, you have five siblings. You grew up a quote unquote, an only child, but you're not an only child. So talk about that real quick. Yeah. Yeah. I actually, I love, I love that you're like really jiving with the subject because as I got to, as I was scatting with my husband yesterday and I was like, I just don't know which direction we can go with this. I think ultimately something that kept coming up for me was was this like theme of identification and really growing up as an only child knowing only one side of my family I think you can go in several directions and I think that the way that that shaped and formed me I became more a person of the world you know there there were two things that were kind of happening succinctly and one was that I felt very interconnected with everything around me. Not having this like anchor of identification of I come from this and this only kind of created some space for me to, to dream and to empathize and to relate and to wonder and to, you know, and to ask questions about other people and cultures and beings and feel that we were like, there was something greater at work than just like what we identify with as a woman, as a male, as a Cuban, as a Spanish, as a Christian, you know, as a Buddhist. And so that really, I think what was really interesting about that is like those two roads diverged when I found out the truth of my father, because, you know, here I was, it's like wavy gravy open, like, you know, we're all just one big people, you know, we're all interconnected. And suddenly this aspect of identity that I did not know played such an integral role in who I was. I was the Jubin. 
I was the Cuban Jew. There's a side of me that my mother's family is not connected to, and it's a mystery, but it's there and it's mine, and I can keep that and I can own it. And I would go to, you know, I'd go to Shabbat and I would attend Passover. And I have all these Jewish friends who still, by the way, are like gunning for me and they're like, dude, you're totally Sephardic. You're totally Sephardic. Look where you've come from. You know, all these Spanish and Egyptian places, like, you know, I mean, they're all it's just hilarious. But yeah, yeah, there was there was definitely this moment of reckoning for me of everything I have identified with up until now, unknowingly, is a lie. So what do I do now? Wow. And okay, only because like I want to tie it into the overall theme of death and mortality. I'm I'm I forgot to ask you one quick question. I think you said it, but I, I'm a little confused. Is your dad still alive? My father is still alive. So guess what my next question is? <laughs> I bet I have an answer to that one too. <laughs> I uh, It was maybe a few days after meeting my sister over the phone that she called me from Florida and um, and just asked me very directly, like, would you mind if I told our father about you? And frankly, it just it's never been on my mind. It wasn't it wasn't ironically enough, given that I'm the, the girl that grew up, quote, fatherless, but not really because I did have a stepdad whose last name I took, by the way. So Deidre is mine only because I took it when I was nine. Yeah. Yeah. So she calls and she she's just like, you know, I just I feel like, you know, he's he's old and he's on his, you know, his last years and it would really warm his heart to hear about you. Um, and I think the good news about finding this kind of stuff out at 40 is, I mean, I suppose it could hit hard, but it doesn't, it doesn't hit as hard as it would have earlier. I think that you've done a lot of the work and if you're lucky, you know, you've done, you've done a lot of the work or you've just started. And, um, and so I think, I think I already had an expectation for who this human was. And especially given the more recent discoveries of who he claimed to be, I wasn't expecting much. So I gave her the pass and I said, you know, I'm not necessarily interested in getting to know who he is, but you're more than welcome to reach out and test the waters. And um, he completely denied knowing me. He completely denied my existence. He said he had five children and five children only. And that was the end of the conversation. So I continue to keep in touch with the family, with Don, with Rosemary, with, you know, whoever would be interested in knowing more. And that's just something that I live with while trying to reconcile this sense of identification that I've had all of my life in being a Jew. You know, I mean, as my husband says, he's like, you know, you were just, you know, transferred from one oppressed people to the other. It's great. It makes total sense. <laughs> he's like, you can work with that. You can work with Mexican. That is so cool. You've already speak the language. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my God. Every political conversation about immigration, especially from Mexico, like totally applies to you now and the rest of your life. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I haven't even started to tap into that. <sighs> yeah, it's crazy. Uh, the, the only question we have to ask, and it is worth asking at this point, is we always ask our guests, what do you think happens when you die? Because it applies in theory, in my theory, to like how you live your life. So I think that question is still completely valid, even though our conversation is really about identity and childhood and stuff. So I'm curious in three directions, okay? One, has that concept changed at all in your lifetime? Two, obviously, what is your concept of it? And then I'll ask the third one after, so. I love it. I mean, yes, of course. Oh my gosh, if our ideals and our thoughts of what life and death have not changed in 42 years, I think we might have a problem. Um. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I was talking to my husband about this last night as well. And he just felt like my aunt, he's like, that is such a cop out answer. And I'm like, no, but it's all connected. Don't you get it? Don't you get it? It's like life and death and death and life. You can't speak about one without the other. Um, what happens when we die? 
So I spent a great deal of my childhood very, very focused on death. I think it was a way of maybe coping with trauma that I didn't realize existed. And and it was there. It was very present. I'd say for a good solid year at the age of maybe 10, I felt like everything was meaningless. Like I didn't even know the, I didn't know the definition of nihilism at the time, but like that was me, man. I was in the throes of it. And it's like, what does this all matter? Like it's all meaningless. I know I'm supposed to believe in Jesus Christ, but like this is just not jiving with me. We're all going to die. And so... 21, I was called back from London because my grandfather was very sick. And I was primarily raised with my grandparents and my mother. I think now's the time to also mention that my mother is the youngest of three kids and her siblings, the two others, are Protestant ministers. So although having this like attachment, right, to like the Jewish side, so that, you know, like this fictitious Jewish side that I had on my father's, I was raised a very practice. So all of that kind of ties in. By then I had come to my own terms about what life and God and, you know, it all meant to me. And it was a different landscape than the one that I'd been raised with. But I flew back to Miami to be present in the room. I had the privilege of holding my grandfather's hand as he passed away. And I think, and I truly believe he waited for me. It was actually kind of a shame because my mother had been with him all morning up until that point when she left to go take a shower. And the people present in that room that day were my uncle, who was a minister, myself, and my grandfather's two best friends from Cuba. And I just, I remember watching as this was all unfolding, knowing that this was the moment. And he just kind of kept looking to the corner of the room and he kept reaching for it. And he kept saying, Mama. Mama. And I would press his hand and he would press back. And as time went on, that would lessen and lessen to where he had no grip on my hand and he was fine. And I just, I don't know, man, I gotta say, like, I think that we're all part of this greater energy source. You know, I, uh, all these concepts of them versus us, us and truth versus everything else and heaven versus hell. I think that all of that just aspires to separate us. You know, all I see is bad and good and that kind of truth doesn't really resonate with my being, you know, and I, I think religious people would say that it's very convenient of me to say that, that I'm very, quote, wavy gravy or new age. Um, but it's so much more than that. You know, I think that to ascribe myself to one set truth and say, I have the answers now is just no place for my soul. It doesn't make sense to me. If that moment gave me any sense if it gave me any spiritual currency, it gave me the knowledge that it's going to be okay. And everything that lies on the other side of this consciousness is only part of a greater consciousness that, man, we just can't, we can't even begin to imagine. I think it's exciting. I think it's surreal. But I also, I think after all those years of just paying mind to all the constant death, you know, my friend in school when I was eight, my cousin when I was six, my mother's boyfriend when I was nine, you know, all of that, just carrying the weight of that. I, I arrived at a place after my grandfather's death where I was like, no, man, I just say yes to life. Like, I want to focus on this living so much that by the time it's all over, I'm excited. I'm ready to let it go. That's a fantastic answer. It was very thoughtful and uh, I connected on many, many points, and I love your phrasing of spiritual currency. That's uh, I could go off on that for 25 minutes. That's so exciting to think about. Mike Oppenheim can go off on that for like two hours. Yeah, yeah, probably. Yeah. <laughs> okay, a little longer. <laughs> so uh, this is like a weird spin to like what you just said, but I am curious, as a parent, and I know you just love the hell out of your cute, cute, cute little boy, um, 
do you ever like worry about his like literal death? Like, does that ever like cross your mind or are you like a pretty relaxed parent when it comes to that? Do I worry about his literal death? I mean, it's just like, do we, I mean, it's a sky blue. Like these questions are, <laughs> uh, yeah, Mike, of course I worry about his literal death. I, uh, I was raised in a Cuban home for God's sake. Like, I mean, I wasn't allowed out the door. I wasn't able to walk to school until I was like, you know, senior year. My mom's like, fine, you can go today. I was like, mom, it's the last day of school. She's like, well, consider yourself lucky. So yes, of course, everything in my world was cuidado. Be careful. You're going to hurt yourself. Someone's going to, someone's going to kidnap you. Someone's going to, you know, I mean, I was obsessed with the knowledge that someone was going to fall. Someone was following me for a whole year when I was seven. Um, so yes, 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 I do. I just, first off, I, I, we are blessed to have a son that we like to call safety first Julian. And if it's not me, he's the one warning me that this is something we don't do because we can quote get hurt. It did not come from me. It did not come from my husband. You know, I think my grandmother's spirit, if you want to talk about death, might be looming over him and reminding him because I actually, based on my experiences, am very easygoing with my son. I am very open with him. I'm very encouraging. I don't like to paint things in a negative light. I, you know, I talk to him about the hard stuff, but there's balance there. I'm extremely mindful about imparting a sense of security in him that's realistic, but not helicoptering, you know, and a lot of that is tied into, you know, raising him in a home that is half agnostic and half, you know, I don't even know what my husband would define himself. You know, he's a chemical engineer, a scientist with atheist leanings until he met me. What was the other, what was the other question? I, I don't know. Have I answered any of this? <laughs> the other, uh, the other question was going to be, do you think like you inherited from your father things that you will never be able to pinpoint but that they're still valid and is he still your father by some definition of yours well as my girlfriend lexi said when she found out about the golden gloves champion thing she's like well now we know where you get your arms from <laughs> like now i know why you're so buff of course piece of all of them in me my ancestors my people my mother my father i've had a lot of time to process this and interestingly my husband at a uh and an executive leadership retreat last week decided to open up and share my 23 and story with his boss. And his boss was just like, wow, man, I'd be crushed. I'd be devastated. Holy crap. And I think it's just, I've processed long enough this reality that there's so much more to us than just the identity of what our parents give us. And this identification of how he completes me or somehow there's a part of me missing because he does not exist. That having him even deny that I exist. I was I was able to forgive that. I was able to forgive it because he's he's only as good and as strong as his experiences, you know. And I I learned a lot about him through my cousin, and I learned a lot about the struggles that he faced and the horrible things that he saw at home, that you know eventually turned him into the individual he is. And so I mean I I, I hope peace for him. I don't know him, you know. I it's all good. It's all good. Is there a part of him in me? Sure. Do I know those parts? No. Did I used to want to know what books he read and, you know, what he found fascinating, why he chose to go into medicine? Yeah. Will I know? That's cool. It's about the stories we share with our child. You know, it's about what we pass on to our children. And I think that resiliency and forgiveness and gratitude, if I can teach Julian that in the way that I live my life, I think that 
I will have considered myself more successful than any narrative of pursuing my father and understanding why he did the things he did would do for me or my son. So not to paraphrase you, but it's kind of my question for you. Are you essentially saying that we get to like pick the parts of our memories and our identity that we want and then we get to construct it? Sure. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that I've ever gone so far as to look at it that way. I mean, tell the whole story for sure. You know, try, try to be as earnest as you can with yourself and with future generations about what what everything looked like. But, you know, I mean, like, isn't isn't happiness just a choice? Isn't moving forward just honoring the parts that help you carry forgiveness? You're speaking to me about identity formation and like what you're doing. And I'm trying to think of like, normally the child rejects the parent who left. Correct. But I would say that's more normal. Absolutely. And so I just like, like it's unfathomable to me as a father of two that I would ever deny either of my beautiful, lovely, glorious children. But I also don't. Yeah, I don't know. But, you know, and that's and that's just it. Right. But it's unfathomable to you based on your experiences, but not this other individuals. And I think really that's what it is. Right. Like, it's you know, learning to be like water, malleability, all of those things, you know, recognizing that obstacles often are so entirely out of your control. Like I have to continue. I have to continually remind myself that to cast judgment on another's opinions or actions is to assume the role of having walked in their shoes of having been shaped to be who they are, right? By every experience that they've ever lived through. And I just can't do that because I didn't live through their experiences. I wasn't shaped the way that he was. You know, if anything, what brought me peace was recognizing that there was an explanation there, that the abuse did not just come from a place of evil or a place of corruption or a place of, you know, it came from a place of childhood a place of vulnerability for him. And that is who he became. So how can I expect more from him? I can't relate to him. I can't imagine being 70 years old and given the opportunity, 80, 80 years old, finally, you're at the end of your life. What have you got to lose? You know, and to reject this notion that there's a person out there who, by the way, looks a lot like you. There's no denying that. Out of all the kids, I'm actually the one that inherited most of the looks here and of his. And it's just, you know, I mean, and it's confounding, but it also, it sets me free. It sets me free in that I actually cry. When I heard the story of my father, I cried. And I cried for him. I cried for this this child. I cried for this little person that I'm so connected to in my own home. Just imagining Julian as my father, you know, and what he must have gone through to become the person he is. It's a bummer, man, but, you know, it's all part of it. And I'm curious, when you first got the test back and everything, was there any part of you that like wanted to deny it, reject it, send it back, redo it? Thousand percent, thousand percent. I mean, I still have, I'm still sitting on on Ancestry.com. My husband's like, this isn't good enough. We're going to do Ancestry too. <laughs> I mean, like, if you want answers, you know, here it is. And I still haven't, I still haven't opened the box, but um, absolutely. And I think that, that that was the real mind, right? if I can use that word, like that was, that was it was feeling that I was this like super liberal open, like we could be anything, man, we're interconnected. We're all one. Like, it doesn't matter who you come from and where you come from. Like we're part of the greater good. We're a collective. And then it's like, whop, you're not a Jew. And there was so much of that, that I had attached myself to unknowingly that to disassociate myself 
from that to, to, to hear myself, you know, when people ask, that's never going to end. I'm 42 years old and people are like, well, you know, to not be able to just say Jubin, you know, that doesn't, it doesn't come out any longer. I have to withhold. And there's so many layers to that. I don't ascribe to a specific belief, much to my mother's chagrin and my family's chagrin. And that's been a very, that's, I mean, that's another podcast altogether. But there have been moments where I have secretly considered adopting the Jewish faith as something that still means something to me. And, and, it's, and it's confusing because I have a father who fabricated that reality. And so a part of me feels like you're only propagating that lie. By continuing, right? Wow, that is mind-blowing. Yeah, and also because this is where the weirdest nexus of all comes in, which is, is Judaism a race, a religion, both? And I, I don't don't answer. <laughs> but I mean, I, my whole life I've dealt with this. I mean, in, in the 30s, if I'm living in Germany, no one's asking me like, do you identify as a religion? Or, you know, it's off to the... Correct, exactly off. That is a real experience that happened in history. That really happened. You're on the internet now. People are listening to you and you can talk to them all at once. What would you say? Oh, man. What would I say? For an emotional and spiritual investment that we make, they come through you, but they are not of you, as Khalil Gibran would say. You know, take it easy on yourself. You're doing better than you think. Don't put so much pressure on the kid. Don't put so much pressure on identification. You know, love, forgive, have gratitude. Always be willing to be proved wrong. That was awesome. I'm sure we will collect most of those quotes for our um, PR for this episode. Well, Lisette Saavedra, uh, somos cubanos. We're still Cuban. Michael Oppenheim, <laughs> somos cubanos. <laughs> you are an amazing guest. Um, I'm really, really thankful that you came on. And I know that you're a private person to begin with and that this is a big step for you. Uh, so anyway, to everyone listening at home, we really appreciate you and we appreciate your support. If you want to help us and go the extra mile, Please give us a positive rating on Apple or Google. And please also head over to MikeyOp.com and subscribe for free to our uh, essays and other stuff that we release. Um, and to Lisette, once again, a huge, giant thank you. And uh, to the rest of you, we will see you soon. <laughs> <laughs>